0: Good evening. I'm Jessica Hobbs, author of the story you are about to enjoy. If you found your way here, you, like me, might find yourself pondering the what-ifs that fuel our deepest fears. What if there really is a monster in the forest? What if the worst aspects of ourselves lead us to our painful demise? What if our mind someday begins to betray us? These thoughts pulse through my collection of short stories the witch and other tales of the American Gothic, an assemblage of strange occurrences across the complicated patchwork of 19th century America. Today's episode is a tale of jealousy, magic, and the powerful forces that lurk beneath the surface of America's most bewitching city. Join us in 1830s New Orleans for the tale of The Debutante. The Debutante, New Orleans, Louisiana, 1835. Violet Davenport loved New Orleans, and soon enough, New Orleans would love her right back. She was 16 now and just two days away from her debut into society, which would take place during the Mardi Gras Carnival. The most exciting time of year, in Violet's humble opinion. Violet loved being around people. When she was a child, her parents had allowed her to stay up late whenever guests were present, even at business functions for her father's work importing expensive textiles for high-fashion suits and dresses. Sometimes they even asked her to play the piano as entertainment, which she never tired of. Even at such a young age, Violet was always able to keep up with proper adult conversation, and friends would often remark at what a fun and clever young lady she was and what a lovely wife she would someday become. Her debutante ball couldn't be coming at a better time, either, as Violet's childhood home had recently and irrevocably changed for the worse. Daddy died just over a year ago when a devastating case of cholera swept through the city, taking thousands of lives all at once. Violet had even heard a distressed man remark that if the epidemic were to continue much longer, There wouldn't be enough men left alive to bury the dead. It was horrible. The image of his yellow skin and the sound of that rattling cough still haunted her nightmares. No matter how hard Mama had tried to keep her from seeing such a ghastly sight, one glimpse of him was enough to burn into her memory forever. Within days, the doctor had come to tell her and Mama that he hadn't made it through the night, that his body, clothes, and bedsheets needed to be removed from the home and discarded immediately and that it was best they were not there to see it. Mama took her to the water to watch the riverboats come in, and when they returned to their beautiful home on Rue Dauphine mere hours later, the house seemed entirely different. The lavishly furnished parlor looked the same. The grand piano still sat in the corner, its ivory keys reflecting the ray of sun that streamed inside. The shutters on the tall windows, which Daddy had painted a bold shade of violet in celebration on the day she was born still stood there, sturdy as ever. But somehow, scrubbing the house of all of his things had made the home feel smaller. It was as if it had always been a home for two, and Daddy had never lived there in the first place. Mama wasted little time in marrying again. Violet felt resentment and pity toward her mother at the same time. Surely the women of New Orleans would observe the fact that Mama had chosen to forego the traditional one-year mourning period And judge the entire family for it. On the other hand, Mama had responsibilities, and Violet was enough of a grown-up to know it. Some widows would waft through life as dark silhouettes in their black lace veils, fainting with grief at the briefest mention of their deceased loved ones, while their brothers took care of the money and servants took care of the children. But Mama had a business to run. She had no brothers, no adult sons, and little in savings. They had done well in New Orleans, But their status was as precarious as the town's interest in luxury fabrics. It never failed, but it did waver, especially in times of war and disease which had dominated most of Mama's life. If she wanted to keep the family afloat, well-dressed, and part of civilized society, she was going to need a man to help. General Boudreaux had led troops to victory in the Battle of New Orleans 20 years ago, which made him a celebrity of sorts. He was well-respected for his devotion to the city, Widowed by the same cholera outbreak that had claimed daddy's life, and nearly alone now that his children had grown, married, and moved away, save for one, Justine, only slightly younger than Violet, who became her new and quite unwelcome stepsister. Oh, Justine just drove her mad. She was a spoiled little socialite whose manners only appeared when the general was present, and the second he would turn his back, that devilish little smile would appear, the one that said, I can get whatever I want. She borrowed Violet's dress without asking and acted hurt when Violet told on her, claiming she just wanted to be the kind of sisters who shared with one another. Then she cried and cried until Mama gave Violet a stern lecture and the General sent her to bed without supper. Once, Justine even took credit for doing chores the housekeeper, Della, had really done and earned herself an extra slice of cake for dessert. The General may have led his men to victory on the battlefield, but he was a damn fool in his own home. Violet understood why Mama needed him, but that sure didn't mean she had to like him or his wretch of a daughter. She wouldn't be marrying a gullible buffoon like him. Her future husband would be warm and generous, but also a quick-witted, respectable man who could run his home and his business with wisdom and sensibility. That was one thing she and the general could both agree on. It was time for her to find a husband. There was no shortage of eligible bachelors in a city as big as New Orleans, And if she had anything to say about it, she'd have suitors lining up at the door in no time at all. Violet peered out her window at the beautiful, bustling city below. This carnival would be the best one yet. In two short days, her life would officially begin. She leapt out of her bed just as the sun graced the cobblestone streets beneath her window. One day to go before her ball, and there was much to be done. Breakfast was simple. Eggs, bread, grapefruit, and tea. She sat across from Justine, with Mama at one end of the table and
1: the general at the other.
0: Darling, Mama said, breaking the uncomfortable silence the newly integrated family usually endured while they ate.
1: We have something to tell you.
0: She shifted uneasily in her seat and straightened her posture.
1: It has been decided that Justine will be joining you at the ball tomorrow evening. As a
2: debutante, yes,
1: the General answered, cutting her off.
2: We will be introducing both of you.
0: But the General shot an icy glare at Mama, who then sent the same glare to her. His chief complaint about Violet had always been her voice. In his eyes, she spoke too frequently when proper young ladies such as herself were supposed to listen and be agreeable to the authority figures in the room. As far as he saw it, it was Mama's failure to properly discipline her as a child that posed the greatest risk to finding her a suitable husband. She desperately wanted to protest, but she knew there would be no arguing today. This was not fair. Justine was half a year her junior and would have her time soon enough. The next carnival, even, would be appropriate for a girl her age. Daddy would never stand for this, and she silently resented Mama for her acquiescence to this plan. The General may have been the man of the house, but it was her house to begin with. Justine smirked over a spoonful of grapefruit, and Violet seethed. After breakfast, Justine always went to the garden to read and study French, which was hardly fair. Violet wanted to be in the garden, it was the nicest part of the family's whole property. But no, Justine didn't want to be disturbed during her studies and Violet would instead go read or practice piano in the parlor. Not today. Justine was going to be disturbed whether she liked it or not. Why are you doing this to me? Violet demanded as soon as the wooden screen door banged shut behind her. Justine's eyes opened wide like a baby deer. I'm not entirely sure what you mean, sister, she said with a mock dramatic tilt to her head. Don't call me that. Justine shrugged. What can I say? Father's a powerful man, and people want to meet his youngest daughter. It's not always just about you, Violet. I'm afraid that's all there is to say about it. Justine went back to her book, and Violet wanted to tear those big eyes right out of Justine's head. She could just picture Justine on the dance floor in a white gown like hers, smiling and greeting everyone and allowing them to overlook the other daughter of the house, the older daughter who had the right to be there while Justine very clearly did not. A dress. Justine must already have a dress. It was far too close to the day of the ball to make her a new one now, and that meant Justine had known about this for some time. Violet stomped back into the kitchen and retrieved a knife from a drawer, then thundered up the stairs to the room she had played in as a child, before she'd had to give away all her childhood possessions to make room for Justine. There it was, hanging in the armoire. It was beautiful. Violet had chosen her own tasteful white gown months ago and had spent every day since dreaming of the day she would get to wear it, but now it felt plain compared to Justine's much more expensive ensemble. A pair of delicate lace gloves sat on a shelf beside the gown. Violet had heard Justine speak of those gloves before and knew they had belonged to Justine's mother. For a moment, she considered stealing the gloves instead, but that wouldn't be enough. Justine deserved to know how it felt to be stabbed in the back. And if Violet couldn't stab her stepsister, the dress would have to be the next best thing. It felt satisfied for a minute or two after she heard Justine's ear-piercing scream an hour later, but Mama, feeling just terrible for Justine, had gone to the shop on Rue Royale, fetched the most expensive fabrics they had, and spent the rest of the day making Justine's dress even prettier than it had been in the first place. Mama had even gone so far as to make a rose out of French lace to match Justine's mother's beautiful gloves, stitched it to the waist, then made her a special red ribbon to tie in a bow underneath it. Mama was an intelligent woman. She knew what Violet had done, and Violet would certainly catch a beating for this later, plus would have to say about a hundred or so Hail Marys in church next week. But she couldn't punish Violet by keeping her home from the ball. No story in the world would offer a sufficient explanation as to why the family would not present Violet, and Mama was in no mood to invite a scandal onto the family. While Justine and Mama fixed the gown, Violet's mind furiously raced with worst-case scenarios of the upcoming ball. Justine was no fool. She'd know exactly what to do to make sure she was the center of attention. Where would that leave her? Competing for the attention of the bachelors Justine didn't want, that's where. The boys with ugly hair and sweat stains under their arms, whose bellies were already stressing the buttons of their vests. No, she decided, this could not be. God may have taken away her father along with hundreds of others who succumbed to that awful disease, and there was nothing to be done about that. But God didn't want her to endure such a dreadful humiliation, the General did. And that was something she just couldn't accept. She waited until after supper, when the sun had gone down and the servants began to light the lamps throughout the house. Once the family had settled into the parlor for the evening to unwind from the usual troubles of the day, Violet politely announced that she was overtired from the excitement of the upcoming ball and would retire to bed extra early to read her scriptures and pray for her big day. It was almost the truth. Instead of heading up the stairs, she quietly slipped through the kitchen and out the back door creeping across the potted palmettos in the garden and out through the wrought-iron gate. It was cold and dreary outside, but Violet hadn't had the time to retrieve her cloak. Visitors to New Orleans never expected the cold. They all thought of the South as being hot and sticky, but in the winter months, the wet, frigid air could whip across the river and wrap itself around a person, seeping under their clothes and straight into their blood. It did so this evening for Violet as she walked under the sycamore trees past all the beautiful mansions on Rue Chartres and into the bustling city nightlife. One of the many elements that made New Orleans the greatest city in the world was its fascination, bordering upon obsession with many forms of spiritualism. The psychic fortune tellers, the voodoo priestesses, the creyentes who practiced Santeria, all of them thrived in the city she called home. Violet was a good church-going young lady, but her worldly, inquisitive mind led her to idolize the transfixing practitioners, most of them women, who claimed to communicate with what they cryptically referred to as the other side. Some used cards or bones, some used fire, some even practiced elaborate rituals involving loud music and dance, and Violet admired the theatricality of it all. Violet's church had often denounced such practices, but nevertheless, modern-day spiritualism was all the rage and New Orleans had certainly made itself known as the epicenter of the phenomenon. Violet entered the Vieux Carre and passed by Congo Square, a site where slaves could gather and dance to the music of their homeland. When she was little, Daddy would bring her near here to treat her to a lemon ice as they watched the riverboats sail by on the Mississippi, and one time they passed a huge celebration in the square. It was loud, but gosh, it sure was beautiful. As they walked past the iron fence surrounding the revelers in the park she spotted a beautiful african woman tall and slender with a yellow tignon in her hair her eyes were closed her hands reached high in the air toward the sky and wrapped around her shoulders was a long heavy green snake it looked right into violet's eyes as she passed by she had never seen a live one before only heard of them in tales the grown-ups would tell of excursions into the swamps with deadly creatures lurking in the trees and on the banks of the bayou. Their eyes stayed locked for what felt like eternity, the creature's sinewy neck lifting its heavy head to stay right at Violet's eye level as she walked by, their gaze unbroken until Daddy hurried her along down the busy street. The snake had scared her as a girl, that was certain, but the sight of it sparked something else in her too. A force seemed to well up in her chest when she imagined those black eyes, something that made her insides feel stronger and her words sharper. It was a kind of confidence she never felt among her family at home, where she was bound every second of every day by the expectations of what a young lady were or were not to do. She thought of this as she made her way back to the alley behind the butcher's shop. There, she'd be able to find a lady who could make things happen. For a few dollars, Celine could fix just about any problem Violet had. The small room was dark, even though it had no door, just a thick red curtain separating the shop from the alley behind it. Violet sat across from her at a wooden table and tried not to stare at the collection of oddities around the room. The walls were adorned with shelves holding various glass jars filled with claws and bones from small animals, rocks and crystals, oils and perfumes, and many, many candles. In the back corner behind Celine, a human skull sat on a tiny wooden table, surrounded by hand-rolled cigarettes and silver coins. Violet wanted to know who she was, where she lived, and how she had come to practice her craft, but there was no time for that. This visit was strictly business, and Violet's curiosity was of no use to the task at hand. Celine clutched a cigarette in one hand and held out the palm of the other without a word. Violet dutifully paid her. Violet would have no need to earn her own money, but the women of New Orleans who performed this kind of service were able to make a living doing so, and that impressed Violet to no end. Women like Celine were simply better than most other people, cunning, otherworldly, and the kind of citizens who made New Orleans the spectacular place it was. What brings you into my shop today? Celine asked. She was a striking Caribbean woman with smooth skin and brown eyes that shimmered with just a hint of green.
1: I need to make someone go away, Violet replied. How badly? So badly. I want her far, far away from here.
2: A young lady your age should scarcely have such powerful
0: enemies. I only have one, she responded, her shining blue eyes rising to meet Celine's.
1: And once she leaves me be, I intend to have no others for as long as I live.
0: Celine took a long drag of her cigarette, the tiny embers brightening up her already sparkling eyes. The white smoke gently curved around her face and she met Violet's gaze as though she were going to ask another question, but remained silent. Finally, she stood up to retrieve a small satchel from a nearby shelf and handed it to Violet, who curiously started to open it and inspect its contents, but was suddenly overcome by a need to get Celine's permission to do so first. Go ahead, look. Violet gently poured a grainy black substance into her hand. Sand? Black salt. Selene corrected. She took her seat again at the table and placed several more items in front of Violet. Three large black candles, a book of matches, a small poppet made of burlap, and a folded slip of paper.
2: Find the large cross at the cemetery crossroads and read it tonight when the streets are quiet,
0: she instructed.
2: You will need something belonging to this person. Hair is good if you can find a comb they have recently used, but it would be best to include another personal item as well. It should be white, if possible, and something
0: meaningful. Something
2: they wouldn't want taken away from them.
0: Violet dutifully nodded and stood to leave. One more thing, said Celine. She retrieved a small skull from another shelf on the wall and set it down on the table facing Violet. Violet shifted the other items to cradle them in one arm and picked it up. It was a familiar shape. It had belonged to a snake.
2: Do not get carried away. Follow the instructions as written. Tell the spirits what you want and be done with it. Should you find yourself in over your head, I shall not be there to protect you. Do you understand?
0: Violet nodded. This may have been a new undertaking for her, but the confidence this plan inspired within her made her feel as tough as a knight in heavy armor. She knew all she needed to know to take charge. It wasn't exactly silent in the graveyard, even if it was nearly midnight. New Orleans never was, and especially not on the eve of an event as highly anticipated as the carnival. The beating heart of the city never stopped, and it was this very energy Violet loved so dearly about her home. Violet had had no trouble finding hair in Justine's room. The oblivious little fool was sound asleep as Violet crept in to retrieve it, so soundly, in fact that Violet took her time perusing Justine's bedroom in search of a personal item to borrow. Her eyes nearly turned red with rage when they landed on the fabric Mama had acquired for Justine's dress, fabric taken from the Davenport family business. Oh, yes, this would do nicely. This was something of hers that Justine had foolishly believed she deserved. Now the red ribbon sat in front of her on the cemetery ground. Tucked between two heavy mausoleums, Violet found a patch of wet grass among the paved paths that cut through the St. Louis Cemetery, as if it were its own little town. New Orleans was positively deluged with the presence of the dead. The slippery mud and the water that raged just beneath the surface of the earth made it impossible to keep bodies underground, and therefore they had to be interned above ground and remain alongside the living. Violet shivered in the cold as she set up the three candles to form a circle around her and lit them with a match. She clawed at the damp ground with her bare hands to make a shallow hole in the earth, and felt the dirt against her fingertips, cold and soft from the dreary humid air, but not so damp as to have turned to mud, and sprinkled the black salt in the circle around it, then adorned the site with the snake skull as though it were a crown. Slowly and with a great deal of concentration, she wrapped Justine's stray hairs around the poppet as though she were wrapping a precious gift in silk, placed it in its shallow grave, and gathered herself to recite from Celine's handwritten note.
1: I call upon the spirit world to open its locked door. I ask for Justine to leave this place and to speak to me no more. No need for goodbye, no need to fight, no grudges from before. I ask for her to leave this place and be banished evermore. Earth and heaven, fire and sea, all eyes tomorrow will be on me.
0: She covered the poppet with the cool dirt and blew out the candles one by one. Celine's instructions said to bury it on the outskirts of town, but as late as it was, Violet felt the need to return home and get as much rest as she could before the busy day arrived. This was far enough from home and would do just fine. The instructions also said to leave the item with the poppet, but that wouldn't work for Violet. She needed to return it lest Justine figure out it had gone missing and blame her for it. She would point the finger at Violet, too, just to make sure the general made Violet's day even worse. The ribbon would be returned, and Justine would be none the wiser. Her bed felt as warm and soft as ever as she crawled into it. Outside, the street lamps cast a soft glow over the city that patiently awaited her presence in the morning. Her body tensed up and she woke with a jolt, her eyes shooting open in the dark. A stifled gasp stuck in her throat. Her whole body felt like a violin string pulled so tight it was just about to snap. What was that? A noise? A voice? Something must have woken her. But it was still the dead of night, and the room was dark save for the glow of the street lamps outside. The floorboards made a gentle squeak as her bare feet touched them. She shivered and reached for her nightcoat then slowly and nervously opened the door to her bedchamber, afraid of what might be on the other side. Her logical mind tried desperately to tell her there was nothing to fear. She was about to be a married woman, and fear of the dark was for little girls, but her insides turned to ice when she opened the door and saw him standing there in the hallway. A tall figure, dressed in black robes with a blood-red vest and a white ascot. His face obscured by a black mask with a long nose and a captain's hat covering his head. He made no sound. Nothing shone from behind the mask, not even the slightest glimmer of reflection in his black eyes. He stood perfectly still, without so much as the gentle rise and fall of his chest and shoulders as he breathed, if he breathed. Violet's breathing stopped as well. For a moment, she convinced herself she must be dreaming but her heart pounded so violently inside her she felt as though someone was repeatedly punching her in the chest. The pain and tension in her entire body told her she was very much awake, and even if she could convince herself this man was an illusion, a trick being played by her tired eyes in the dark, narrow hallway, the fear that gripped her throat told her this was no apparition. He was a force of something dark, something inhuman, and he was here just for her. Standing in front of him, she couldn't speak or even scream. All she could think to do was simply close the door and wait for the morning light to save her, banishing the darkness of night, and with it the terrifying figure that had invaded her home. She lay on her back for the rest of the night, staring straight above her and into the ceiling. For the first few hours, her eyes darted to the door, now covered by a very heavy armoire that she had taken great pains to push in front of it, at the expense of the once pristine wood floor. Mama would surely give her hell for it later, but for today, it didn't matter. Slowly, minute by minute, the room became brighter as the dawn crept onto the windowsill. Before she knew it, there was a knock at the door.
2: Miss Violet? Breakfast is ready downstairs.
0: Della called to her. She was surprised by the intrusion. Her plan had been to wait until the sun was up and the Louisiana heat began to fill the room, then check the hallway again. Another thought hadn't entered her mind in hours, not even of the rest of her family and whether anyone else in the house would encounter him. Della attempted to open the door, but it banged against the armoire.
1: Thank you, Della, but I don't need help this morning. I'll be down shortly.
0: She quickly dressed herself in a simple purple dress with a blue ribbon in her hair. Now the hard part, moving the armoire out of the way. She pushed as hard as she could, finding the task much more difficult now without the sensation of adrenaline rushing through her veins. Eventually it budged, little by little, leaving even more scuff marks on the floor beneath it. Her pale hands trembled as she touched the cold brass doorknob and gently twisted it, opening the door with wide eyes and bated breath. Nothing graced the hallway but the faint voices coming from the dining room downstairs. Whatever it was, it had gone away, just as she had hoped. Stepping into the hallway... She gave control for the rest of the day to God. She had done her part, and perhaps this figure was just Celine's messenger, a way to tell her the forces were watching over her and everything was going to be just fine. Better than fine. The spirits wanted her to relish every moment of this day. And that was exactly what she intended to do. The rest of the day went by in a blur. Hired ladies in simple attire buzzed around Violet for hours, hemming her gown putting her hair in curls, painting her cheeks and eyelids, filing her fingernails, and pulling her corset as tight as they could manage. Violet loved every moment of it. But her mood soured every time she heard an obnoxious giggle coming from down the hall, where the very same treatment was being given to Justine. Justine, with her raven hair and her sharp cheekbones being kissed with a maroon blush, her newly gussied-up white dress, and the red ribbon Mama had made special just for her. She forced herself to smile bigger every time she heard the commotion coming from Justine's room. This would be her night, she reminded herself. She just had to be patient. The hotel was one of the tallest buildings in town, and had a second-story ballroom large enough for nearly all of the city's upper class. And it was nearly filled to the brim with luscious white flowers that reflected the light of many exquisite candelabras she waited atop the ballroom's grand staircase which she and the other ladies would descend to make their debut in just a few moments lining up with all the other debutantes perfectly poised in her white satin gown upper length gloves and her mama's prized pearls made her feel like a perfect ballerina waiting for a curtain to lift so she could be admired by her adoring audience Until, of course, so many of the city's most devoted fathers lined up beside their girls, ready to hear their family name announced by the MC below, and walk their daughters down the grand staircase and into the new world of adulthood. Suddenly, it wasn't just resentment she felt for the general, but a longing so deep and painful it were as if she had been kicked in the belly by a mule. Daddy wasn't just absent from today's festivities. He was gone from every happy moment Violet would have for the rest of her life. They would look ridiculous walking down the staircase with one of them on each of the general's arms. Only once had that happened before in Violet's lifetime, when the Moncrief family had presented their twin girls some eight or nine years earlier, and that was entirely different. The whole city had scarcely ever seen the girls apart. They had worn their matching dresses at church every Sunday and shared every birthday cake, so naturally they would walk together with their father to make their debut. Justine was hardly Violet's other half, she was hardly even Violet's sister. She was an intruder. It was just as they prepared to hear their names called when a sickening feeling came over Violet. The man on the stage downstairs was about to announce the daughters of the Boudreaux family, the General's family, not the Davenports. Justine wasn't the intruder here; she was. Sure enough, the Boudreaux family name was called, and the three of them walked down the stairs arm in arm and stood politely in the ballroom as more family names were announced after theirs. It was... quick. Mere seconds on a staircase, and then it was over. Was that it? No matter. The party was the fun part, anyway. Once the hopeful young women in white gowns had taken their places around the dance floor, the champagne finally began to flow, and music filled the room. Violet had expected a string quartet, but they had hired what must have been close to a full orchestra, along with an honest-to-God opera singer. Until tonight, Violet had only imagined what an opera singer's most impressive vocal chords could sound like after Daddy and Mama returned home from the opera house and Mama told her all about it as she put Violet back to bed. And her voice was just divine. Champagne in hand, she took in the music and the sea of black suits and white gowns around her And darn near forgot all about the troubles that had plagued her mere moments before. Justine, who? She and the general and her annoying laugh could all go to hell. It was when the opera singer hit a high note and held it for at least the length of time it would have taken Violet to down a whole glass of champagne that she felt the color drain from her cheeks and her insides freeze. The hair stood up on the back of her neck. Her heart raced faster than the river after the summer rains. She slowly looked over her shoulder and saw him standing there at the back of the room, taller and darker than any of the other guests. Those dark eyes shone through his mask and stared straight at her, and it was then that she remembered seeing those eyes once before, when she was locked in the gaze of the snake in Congo Square. Except now that feeling of confidence was gone, and only a paralyzing sense of dread remained. Their eyes locked until a young couple passed her in the crowd, and a split second later, he was gone. She felt it in her blood that he was still here, and even if she couldn't see him, he could most certainly still see her. The orchestra played on and the merriment continued, but to her, the room suddenly felt quiet. Something about it had changed. Then she realized what was missing. Justine's laugh. It had stopped. Violet scanned the room, looking for her, and found nothing. She wanted to be glad that Justine had left the party— most likely taking a stroll with some potential suitor or another, finally leaving her to make her rightful choice in peace. But something held her back. She was afraid. The general caught her eye. He was also scanning the room, a look of consternation settling on his face. He leaned over ever so slightly to whisper something to Mama, who immediately afterward adopted the same expression and the same motion. They were looking for Justine, too.
1: My,
2: it sure seems as though our guest of honor is lost in her thoughts this evening,
0: said a smooth voice. A smile involuntarily made its way onto her pink lips. She turned to face Benjamin St. Clair, the eldest son of the owner of a lumber mill and member of the New Orleans City Council. Benjamin would make a fine husband indeed. He was, in fact, near the top of her list of eligible young men, and here he was, tall and looking like a prince in his tuxedo, patiently standing there, awaiting her reply. The rest of the room faded into obscurity.
1: Perhaps...
0: He continued, no doubt due to the length of time at which she had stood frozen in place, staring at him.
1: You would not mind enlightening me as to what is occupying your mind so thoroughly?
0: Yes! She blurted, and noticed he slightly bristled at the abrupt answer.
1: Uh, um, certainly.
0: Yes. Yes, that would be lovely.
1: Splendid.
0: He smiled and offered his arm. The doormen opened the french doors to the terrace and with them the gates to another world the carnival on the street below raged underneath her feet men breathed fire on the street corners the liquor flowed like water and music poured from every open window in town mardi gras celebrations had taken place when she was a child but this was something else something raw something spectacular women danced with their midriff showing dogs ran through the streets barking Men dressed as court jesters did cartwheels and backflips. Every single man and woman wore a mask covering their eyes, sometimes even their entire face. It was as if everyone in New Orleans had been given permission to be someone, no, something else, if only for this one magnificent night. And here they all were, reveling and dancing beneath her, as she stood above them on the iron terrace, as if she were their queen.
2: Oh my. I apologize. I had not realized the festivities had already become so...
0: Benjamin's gaze caught a man and woman in the entrance of an alley down the street. They kissed passionately, and the man pawed at the woman's breasts. Risqué.
2: Perhaps inside would be better.
0: No, Violet remarked, startling herself.
1: Uh, This is lovely, don't you agree? The air is so thick you can practically smell the magnolia trees from uptown. And the carnival, well, I think it's just
0: magical. Benjamin stood up as straight as he could.
2: Very well. So, Miss Davenport,
0: how do
1: you find...
0: She jumped as a shadow appeared across his face. Suddenly there was no light coming from inside the ballroom, and it was as if Benjamin, in his black suit and top hat, had folded right into the darkness.
1: Are you all right, miss?
0: She reached out to the direction of his voice and touched his face, confirming he was there even though she could no longer see him. He gently placed his hand on top of hers as the shadow slowly disappeared, and there he was, her handsome suitor, gazing straight into her eyes. She knew she should remove her hand. What on earth would Mama say if she were to step out onto the terrace? But the moment was just too precious. Benjamin would propose. She knew it right then and there. They would live in a grand house with a large magnolia tree in the yard. They would come to the carnival every year with their friends while their happy children slept soundly in their beds, protected by their loyal and adoring servants. Benjamin would take over the family business. He was young and educated with enough energy to bring the company forward and expand it as New Orleans continued to grow and prosper. The image was as clear to her as anything she'd ever imagined. So transfixed was she in the moment, she didn't notice the droplet land on her wrist, nor the next one. But when the liquid began to trickle down her forearm, she couldn't ignore it any longer. Benjamin looked at it, puzzled.
1: Miss Davenport, are you hurt?
0: She examined her arm more closely. It was stained with blood. And then, the scream. She felt a surge of resentment toward whatever it was that broke the spell she had just shared with Benjamin. What stuffy socialite had ruined her evening with such a horrible sound? It was probably all for nothing. This woman, whoever she was, had likely seen a mouse. She had to get Benjamin's attention again. It had been nothing but pure luck that the two of them had had such a brief moment of privacy to begin with. But just as Benjamin grabbed her hand and pulled her back inside to investigate the commotion, she looked up over her shoulder… A long ribbon dangled from the terrace on the floor above, and draped over the edge, lifeless and soaked in blood, was a hand covered in a delicate lace glove. The musicians had stopped playing, but the room was louder than ever, filled with murmurs and gasps. A small group of men made their way down the crowded grand staircase. One of them carried a woman, her gloved arms wrapped around his neck, as she sobbed uncontrollably into his shoulder. She felt the darkness creep upon her just before she realized whom the distressed woman was. It was Mama. The ribbon hanging from the terrace was Justine's. The thought crashed into her mind and made her physically ill. She hated Justine, but she didn't want her to die. And Justine was most certainly dead. A minor wound would not cause blood to spill in such a way that it could drip like that. Something terrible had happened, and she knew in her heart that it had something to do with the snake. Violet thought back to the night before and of the poppet buried in the cemetery. Celine had said to bury it away from town to make Justine go away but Violet had disregarded it and left her with the dead. Then, as if that hadn't been bad enough, she had brought the cursed object back to Justine instead of leaving it with the doll. She felt lightheaded. She hadn't slept the night before and felt a wave of exhaustion rush over her. It mixed with her terror and made her feel as though she was trapped in a hideous nightmare. But a nightmare could never be so frightening. She heard a sudden gasp next to her, immediately followed by a gurgling noise. Just beside her stood the opera singer, struggling for air as her gown became soaked in blood streaming from a stab wound to the neck. She collapsed on the floor, and blood poured over the rug at Violet's feet. Another scream from across the ballroom interrupted the one about to emerge from Violet's throat. Another debutante in her once pristine white gown collapsed, splattering blood across the wall as she fell. Panic erupted in the room, and several partygoers stumbled to the floor, whether they were trampled fainted, or had succumbed to the same terrible fate as Justine, Violet did not know. The party descended into chaos all around her as everyone rushed to the door. Standing there, perfectly still in the middle of the maelstrom, was the dark figure with those cold, dead eyes. The world seemed to freeze around Violet. The room fell silent, and for a brief moment no one else existed but the two of them. Very slowly, He raised his hand, as if to wave to her from across the room. Only it wasn't a human hand at all. It was a blade of some kind, as black as the rest of him, and dripping with blood. Her trance was broken when the stampede of the crowd nearly lifted and carried her to the exit. Everyone was packed so tightly in the narrow stairwell, they nearly suffocated against one another as they desperately tried to escape. Violet tried to shove her way through the wall of bodies, but it was no use. She was being crushed by the mob, and struggled to stay on her feet lest she fall and be trampled to death. Finally, the mob burst through the bottom of the staircase, and Violet ran through the hotel lobby and out the front door. Expecting relief, she instead found the wind knocked out of her by being thrust from one crowd into another. The streets were packed with partygoers, unaware of the tragedy that had unfolded beside them. The screams from inside now blended with the music and excitement of the carnival. It was a sea of silks and velvet, imitation pearls, glass gems, and bright colors. Too bright, almost violently bright. She looked around frantically and failed to find a familiar face. Staring at her instead was a menagerie of masks and disguises, beasts and birds, satyrs and mermaids, a cacophony of the natural and fantasy worlds in all their fascinating, beautiful, horrible, and grotesque glory. The masked strangers all seemed to be happy laughing and shouting in French, German, Spanish, and every dialect of English, and many of them looked straight at her as they passed. Despite her torn and bloodstained dress, they laughed. Were they laughing at her? She suddenly felt smaller than she ever had, even as a child. Then, she spotted him in an alley, staring at her, waiting for her. Had she really done something wrong during the spell? Had she called upon the wrong spirit for help? No. Her intentions had been clear to her the whole time, and this was not what she wanted. The fear that had gripped her entire body gave way to a white-hot rage. The source of her anger was something she could not quite decipher. She was furious at the General for making her feel inferior. At this demon, whatever he was, who misinterpreted her words and had wreaked havoc on this special occasion at society itself for telling her that her value as a girl all came down to this night, a night that was now ruined, as was she. She pushed her way onto the sidewalk, finally breaking free of the crowd. It turned away from her and ran, no, it slithered down the alley. Violet had never run so fast in her life. Her chest burned and her legs felt weak, but it was right in front of her, so close she could almost touch it. Yes, her fingers grazed the cape that flowed in the wind behind him. She reached again and grabbed a handful of the soft fabric and pulled as hard as she could. The figure came tumbling down onto the cold cobblestone street, and she jumped on top of it, stomping her feet as hard as she could, then falling to the ground and pummeling it with her fists. Leave this place! Violet screamed at him, desperately trying to recall the words that had brought him here from the depths of hell. It raised its sharp appendage, but it did not have the chance to use it against her. Violet grabbed it, twisted it as hard as she could, and slammed it down into the creature's
1: chest. I ask for you, no. I demand for you to leave this place and be banished evermore. The harder she hit, the more she felt the
0: figure go limp beneath her hands. Black sludge splattered all over her face as she hit it over and over and over again. It stopped moving. She stood and looked down at it, a pummeled mess in the middle of the cobblestone street. Her breath returned to her lungs and burned from the inside. The world around her that had turned a hideous shade of scarlet red came back into focus, and on the ground before her lay nothing but a black robe and mask. The street behind her had gone completely silent. As she slowly returned to the moment, Violet's gaze drifted over her shoulder The whole town stood at the entrance to that dark, dank alley. Party-goers, carnival performers, guests, and debutantes alike watched her, horrified by the violent scene before them. Just as she had commanded the night before, all eyes were certainly on her. The general stood at the front of the mob, mouth agape, speechless and horrified. Violet's white gown and blonde curls were a mess of dirt, slime, and human blood. This was a hell of a sight to be seen and it was how all of New Orleans would forever see her. There was no explaining the ghastly sight before them and nothing for Violet to do but turn and face the city she loved, the city she knew she had betrayed with her own selfishness. Consumed with shame, Violet could only think of retreating to her bed and allowing the sheer exhaustion of the ordeal to overtake her. What fate had in store for her tomorrow, she did not know, but she resigned to endure their judgments and accept whatever consequence found her the following day. Violet stood there, staring back at them. She straightened her posture and smoothed her dress as best she could. Good evening.
1: She said. I'm rather tired. I think I'll retire for the evening now. The crowd
0: parted for her as she walked ahead. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of The Witch and Other Tales of the American Gothic. Special thanks to our amazing voice actors, Shannon Spangler, Monique Carmona, Daryl Lathan, and Angela Cohen for lending their talent to these characters. Thanks to our friends Brian Taylor, Joe Carrillo, and Dara Stone for their support. And of course, to my favorite composer slash audio engineer slash human, Robinson Hobbs. For more stories from The Witch and Other Tales of the American Gothic, Subscribe to our podcast or check out the book at jessicahobbswrites.com slash americangothic. Join us next time when we run away with a traveling circus for a tale of survival, anger, betrayal, and the realization that our own worst enemy might live in the mirror in the story of the acrobat. See you there.